Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Hello, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby. My name is Reed. And you're listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem, and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. And ladies and gentlemen, um, just really excited to have you guys join us once again and actually excited and nervous about a lot of things, including uh, what we have coming up in less than a month with the general election. And of course, with that said, the presidential election. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is really just um, talk about how this particular election, I feel like this is every four years. I don't know if you feel the same way, Reed, but every four years, right, when we have these general elections and you know, the presidency is up for grabs. I feel like it is like the stakes are always higher than ever. But this one in particular, especially um, with what we have, uh, where we stand now with our healthcare system and the potential future, depending on who is elected uh, into the presidency, you know, the future can be drastically different. We're essentially on, you know, these candidates, um, you know, have very different, I mean, they couldn't be more opposite, I feel like, um, in terms of their views and potential plans uh, for healthcare. And so we're talking about divergent paths, depending on who gets into the White House. Now, before we get into the conversation, though, I just want to um, bring up once again, ladies and gentlemen, follow through um, on my word. And uh, I think the last episode, I told you guys that, you know, I did, um, go to my gastroenterologist and um, consulted him for a colonoscopy and actually um, had that procedure performed. And so, yeah, man, it was, it's done. Um, had one polyp that was removed and just aw- at this time awaiting the pathology report um, or basically sort of, you know, when they analyzed that tissue, sort of what type of cells those were, whether it was precancerous or some other type of polyp. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm actually relieved um, because I think I shared with you all that my father passed away from colon cancer. So I did go into that with some level of fear thinking that, man, this could be something, you know, I don't know what we're going to find, but that's it. It's done. And I do feel relieved in that, right? I got it done one and two. Now, you know, 
I know my status in that regard. And now it's about protecting that status, meaning, right, um, engaging in, as, as we always sort of uh, promote on this show, just really focusing on living a healthy, active, and productive lifestyle. Um, and, and part of that is just getting these type of things done, these really important screening exams uh, done in order to make sure that we can do that. So it's done, you man. Flu shot? You get your flu I shot did. though? Oh, that was that was another thing, actually. Thank you, Reed, because I did. I was like, yeah, I gotta let them know. Like, I got the flu shot. We talked about that on the last show, too. And we were like, we gotta hold each other to it. So um, I got that done too. Got it done while I was at work. Um, I actually ran into a colleague who was like, Oh, yeah, and by the way, I'm just gonna go walk over and get. And I was like, Yo, I'm coming with you right now, because that's uh, uh you know, that has to happen. So yeah, man, I'm I'm making things happen. I'm gonna keep bringing that, you know, to the show, letting you guys know what I'm doing, so that you know on this program that we are not uh, hypocrites. <laughs> we are, you know, we're we're doing this and and taking part in this journey just as you are out there. And it's a little early, but she's here, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Imani Lynn Selby has decided to join the program. <laughs> So uh, I guess yes. you're like a regular feature on yeah. the show now, correct, right, Monty? Yeah. 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 Pretty much. You always just like pop up out of nowhere, which is great, though. Uh-huh. So refreshing. Moving on in our conversation and back to our topic for tonight. Now, the challenge is in both myself and Reed, we swore up and down, and we were going to try our very, very best. Am I right, Reed? We're going to try our very, very best to be totally objective in what we're giving you right now. Um, I mean, I feel like uh, if you're listening to this program right now, you probably saw the topic for discussion and either you said, man, I, I'm, I'm enough. <laughs> I made my decision. I know what I'm voting for. Um, or you said, huh, I really don't know where these people stand on that. And I'm still undecided and an undecided voter. And uh, hopefully this, this show can give me some more information so that I can make an informed decision. Well, that's the plan with the program um, that we're about to get into is really just to give you information um, that you can make a sound decision on when it comes to deciding the future of the com- country um, in terms of healthcare, right? Um, so one thing we want to get off the bat, off the bat is really just to say, vote <laughs> number one. We're not going to tell you how to vote, but we will tell you, you should vote, right? You definitely should um, exercise your right um, to vote. And uh, hopefully we can, as we said, we're just going to try to really get some good information out there uh, so that you can make a decision, right? And really just take away all of the politics uh, surrounding this, which I'm pretty sure you're getting nice doses of uh, in the mainstream media and even some of the other blogs and podcasts you might be um, perusing you know, day to day leading up to the election. But that's our goal tonight is really just to get information out there um, that lets you know where each of these candidates stand in, co- in terms of healthcare. Absolutely. And even if you have made up your mind already on who you want to vote for, hopefully this show can give you an idea of what healthcare might actually look like under each of these presidents. Yes. Yes. Um, so crucial, man, just to see where we are going, regardless of who gets in there um, and, and what to expect. Now, with this upcoming election, I think it's important really for us to understand where we are right now as far as our health care system is concerned. And as it stands at this moment, we have um, around 37 million uninsured individuals and another 41 million that are, quote unquote, underinsured. 
um, meaning that they you know, essentially just have inadequate access to uh, good quality health care. And although we have the highest healthcare expenditures per capita in the world, we don't have the best outcomes. With the passage of the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, when that passed into law in 2010, there were essentially three goals for that legislation. Number one, increase the number of insured persons. Another goal was to improve the quality of care that was delivered um, in our country. And then finally, uh, one of the major goals was to reduce healthcare costs. And I think um, it's pretty much general consensus was that it definitely achieved goal number one in increasing the number of insured persons, um, primarily through the expansion of Medicaid uh, throughout all 50 states uh, in the in the U.S. When it comes to looking at some of the other goals, especially when we talk about reducing healthcare costs, that's where we know that this legislation was quite limited. And especially when we talk about working class and middle class Americans, they faced a lot of high out-of-pocket costs and increase in premiums with ex- with the exchange enrollment. Um, and that was that happened to be a pretty big disappointment with the legislation. Um, those making 400% of the federal poverty level just didn't get as much support as, um, you know, uh, I guess, less fortunate um, or individuals in lower socioeconomic classes in our country. And only 3% of healthcare expenditures are allocated for preventive care and services, whereas the cost of chronic diseases, you know, have been increasing, even with uh, the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Unfortunately, despite we we did see that 20 million insured through the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, um, 6 million people actually lost their insurance with the passage of that law, right? And um, again, as it stands today, even we look at outcomes uh, in this country, especially when we talk about the management uh, and prevention of chronic diseases, we are just not where we should be. Um, in comparison to other high-income and developed nations. And so um, this is why this election is huge, right? Because it put pits these two ideological opposite um, candidates against one another. And in this episode, we're just going to put all of the politics aside and just focus on the candidates and um, their proposed, and I would even say inferred, plans for healthcare uh, in this country. I guess we start with the incumbent. Yeah, sure. Um, Definitely. I think in a way, it's almost easier to infer what it would look like, Uh, even though his campaign actually hasn't put out any sort of plan for healthcare, It might be easier to infer what healthcare would look like under Trump, because we have four years of his presidency that we can look back on and see what he's done and see what his agenda has been after he's made those promises to the American people. Whereas on the campaign trail, Biden, he's making promises. Who knows what will actually come to fruition if he were to be elected? So even though there's a lack of a defined plan on Trump's side, it may be a little bit easier to infer what it would look like. Um, And we also have Biden's um, vice presidency right under uh, President Obama. I I think we can use some of the some of that that tenure um, of his to see what might be you know, foreshadowed with um, with him potentially winning this election. Absolutely. Yeah, that is true. And also what other Democrats are pushing as well will also influence Biden's plans significantly. 
really, um, ladies and gentlemen, we're just going to focus on just four aspects of healthcare. We're talking about a large topic, right? Healthcare um, in general and how this election uh, will impact that. And so we're going to focus on mainly four aspects of this. And um, one, the Affordable Care Act. I think we cannot <laughs> just can't talk about this without talking about that legislation. Uh, we're going to talk about changes to Medicaid and Medicare and the lowering of health care costs. And then finally, the management of the coronavirus pandemic. And I think that, you know, focusing on those issues will really help us put into perspective what we can see with each of these candidates. Um, so starting with President Trump. So you said he, the man has no plan, Reed? That may not be true. He may have some of a plan, but he has not released any formal plan to the American He's, people. Yeah, he says he has a plan. He definitely says that he has a plan and, um, uh, you know, that there it's all ready to go. And um, But, but I agree with you. He's been promising that since Campaign Trail 2015, and there's True still story. yet to be any published plan. True story. Um, but I do um, agree with you, man. We, we do have his uh, record to look to and also um, just him being the face of the Republican Party. Um, I think a lot of those, a lot of their beliefs will definitely factor into any system that he implements uh, going forward should he achieve um, being elected to a second term. And starting at the top, really, especially regarding the Affordable Care Act, Number one, it seems like his big plan is really to repair, repeal that act and replace the Affordable Care Act with something that we would would should be better, right? Now, that's what I'm hoping is that we're taking yes. this away with the goal of getting something uh, better. And one of the main things that really comes up with that is just sort of um, coverage of individuals with pre-existing conditions. Um, if there was any sort of big a sort of major point of the Affordable Care Act was that individuals with pre-existing conditions were previously large, you know, in many ways uninsurable. Um, they were deemed to be a, a very high risk um, to be insured by private insurance companies. And thus it was very difficult for them to obtain insurance. Um, but through the Affordable Care Act, this became the law of the land where no company could deny um, insurance to these individuals. And um, President Trump has committed to ensuring that all individuals with pre-existing conditions will be able to obtain coverage under the new system. Yes. I would say, again, I would say if you know anything about the Affordable Care Act, the two most important things that you would know is protection for those with pre-existing conditions and also that uh, you can stay on your parents' health insurance until you're 26. Yeah, uh, those are really the two biggest provisions provided by the Affordable Care Act. Um, so, after Trump got elected in 2017, the Republicans tried to strike down the ACA through legislature through the through Congress, um, and they were unable to do that, uh, largely because they were unable to come up with an alternative plan. Uh, that would either provide protections for those with pre-existing conditions or that wouldn't result in millions of people losing coverage. Um, so since they were unable to repeal it through legislation, they tried to do it through the judicial system. 
Um, so something that's important to note is that the Affordable Care Act is up in front of the Supreme Court, I believe, the week after the election. Yes. Um, so that's going to be a very, very big focus, especially uh, if Amy Coney Barrett gets confirmed to uh, former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. Yes. One would imagine that uh, should President Trump be reelected, that this would continue, right? Um, these challenges to the Affordable Care Act, um, regardless of what happens in the next few weeks with this uh, Supreme Court ruling, these challenges would you know, inevitably continue um, under a Trump presidency. And uh, one thing that I want to get out there, because I think, you know, if you're really depending on which side you're on and who you're for, as far as your candidate, um, you know, you just hear a lot of things that really just confirm what you probably already believe or what you already understand. And one thing that we really need to get out there is that there are real limitations and problems with the Affordable Care Act. Um, Absolutely. And, and there are things that President Trump um, and the Republican Party and conservatives, right, there are, I think, valid arguments as to why they would really want to look closely at this legislation um, and address those issues. Um, now, completely, you know, repealing it and sort of starting afresh, that's a whole, I think that's a whole other show. Um, but one thing that we just need to understand before you tune out, because I think people are like, okay, I already know this story is like, no, don't don't just tune out um, at this point. But we need to understand the limitations with this legislation um, going forward and really what it is that President Trump and the Rep Republican Party are trying to address. And um, as we said, one of the major issues was just sort of the um, cost to middle class, especially middle class uh, middle-income Americans, um, especially individuals that were not able to or did not fall under um, uh, the criteria or eligibility for Medicaid programs uh, in various states. These are the individuals that have really had a difficult time with this legislation. And as we said, we've seen this increase in uh, premiums. We have not necessarily across the board seen the uh, or appreciate appreciated the de decrease in healthcare costs. If anything, uh, those costs continue to rise. And so those are major problems with this legislation. And um, one of the major issues that, that the Republican Party and President Trump are trying to address, um, whether or not you, you're for them, right, completely starting over afresh and, and taking this whole thing down, um, you know, that's a whole other argument. But those are some of the issues that we're dealing with. Yeah, I would say it may be useful to explain the state of funding of healthcare in this country at, in a very, very, very simplified manner. Um, but really, at its base level, uh, healthy middle income people are going to be paying more to provide services to unhealthy lower income people. So, whether that goes up or goes down, it's really going to be all that money for, to pay for healthcare for those lower uh, income people who are unhealthy is going to be coming from middle income people, which a lot of people think is a bad thing. Not necessarily what I think, but we are trying to be impartial. Um, so it's going to, you'll see us crack a little bit sometimes during the A show, little bit, a little bit, but, but um, I'm glad that you brought that up really just in terms of, right. Just how this system is, 
uh, I guess, theorized to work for everyone. And um, yes, younger, healthier individuals. Um, and I'm glad that you sort of pointed out the sort of middle class, um, and it's unfortunate that this is the case, but um, you know, through tax dollars um, being put into these programs that fund Medicaid expansion, um, that that has been what we've seen used to decrease the cost for um, individuals with lower socioeconomic status. On the other hand, what we see too is healthier, younger individuals um, paying into this system to essentially subsidize the cost for individuals with chronic diseases um, and individuals at later stages in life that we know suffer for, from um, other um, chronic health issues and therefore have higher health care costs. And so, uh, and, and you know, this is something that I've definitely appreciated on both ends um, as a practicing physician. One, you know, looking at my taxes um, is definitely anxiety provoking, <laughs> sometimes anger induced, like, really, yo, where is this stuff going? Um, but then also looking at my premiums for healthcare coverage for myself and my family, you know, I'm definitely paying um, a, a significant amount um, for both of those. And uh, that is, you know, in terms of, you know, myself within this system, that is the theory that me as a young, healthier person um, with a young, uh, healthy family, right, we are paying into this system. And essentially, uh, my premiums, right, being as high as they are, my tax dollars are, um, you know, with in my head, at least, I know that they're being put to use to um, make sure that the cost of healthcare um, and therefore access to care is improved for other individuals, right? Um, so those individuals with pre-existing conditions that prior to the Affordable Care Act would have likely been uninsurable um, through my sort of increased contribution, I'm subsidizing the cost of healthcare insurance for them. Even if I were single and sort of, um, you know, by myself and uh, decided not to get insurance, the whole purpose of the legislation and especially that mandate was to bring healthier, younger individuals um, into the pool of insurance collectively throughout the country so that um, premiums could be more affordable um, and really to ensure that um, insurance companies would not go under by providing insurance for um, individuals with pre-existing conditions. And so that economically, I guess, from a macroeconomic standpoint, is really how this system is supposed to work. And that is why one of the key components of um, repealing the Affordable Care Act, right? One of the key things that would need to happen is making sure that individuals with pre-existing conditions um, are covered. And so in terms of um, the proposals on the table, or at least what we could forecast potentially from the Trump administration uh, would be um, the increase in high risk pools. And this was something, not a new concept um, coming from uh, the Republican side, but this is something that had been tried um, in more than 30 states for you know close to four decades um, prior to the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And um, essentially 35 states offered high-risk pools as a source of non-group health insurance for individuals with pre-existing conditions. And Minnesota and Connecticut were among the first states to implement such pools back in 1976. 
And, um, you know, we sort of last each sort of joined this lineup um, with uh, North Carolina joining the high risk pools, I guess, uh, coalition in, in 2009. And according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, before the passage of the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act um, of 1996, that's the HIPAA Act. There were 25 states with high-risk pools, and there was a combined enrollment of 91,054 individuals. Towards the end of 2011, that number ballooned to 226,615 individuals across 35 states. And in states with the highest enrollment, so Maryland, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Texas, um, enrollment exceeded 20,000 individuals. And in 11 of those states with high-risk pools, there were fewer than 2,000 people that were enrolled. And on average, only about 2% of enrollees in these non-group insurance plans um, in states with these high-risk pools, uh, they were enrollees in state-sponsored high-risk pool insurance plans. And so essentially what we take away from this was that you know, there were a lot of individuals that were not being included uh, in these high risk pools that probably have, um, you know, medically eligible pre-existing conditions. And in a study conducted by Kaiser Family, Family Foundation, they found that 27% of individuals under 65 years of age that have health conditions that would have made them uninsurable in a non-group insurance market um, because of the Affordable Care Act, these individuals um, are, would have been presumably, uh, covered today. And so, you know, while these, um, high risk pools are different in each state, each of them had conditions and rules that really prohibited a large number of individuals with pre-existing conditions from enrolling into these plans. And so it's something that essentially has been, you know, tried um, extensively, but for the most part has failed. Now, can it be optimized? Can it, it is something that can be, you know, sort of tweaked and, and reworked to increase the number of individuals with pre-existing conditions that can get insurance? That's quite possible. But again, we're talking about, you know, starting from scratch and individuals that have those protections that have that coverage right now with pre-existing conditions all throughout the United States um, with the repeal of the Affordable Care Act they would they would lose that, so it's just something yeah, to exactly. think about. Um, and Trump has been t- has maintained and promised that everybody with a pre existing condition will have protections, um, but under that kind of system, it doesn't look like there's any feasible way to provide coverage for everybody with pre existing conditions. Yes, and and, and uh, multiple analyses has been determined that um, a, a programs like that, these high risk pools in each state, could actually run up costs um, in each of these states as opposed to controlling costs, which is one of the uh, goals of systems like this is to sort of, um, you know, reduce and control uh, costs throughout the country. Um, But it is something that, you know, as we said, has been tried, uh, seems like many times, but it hasn't, hasn't been as successful as one would have hoped. And, um, you know, that's something that we definitely need to think about going forward. Now, if we go forward to Biden and his plans on the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, essentially being the former vice president to President Obama, under which 
the Affordable Care Act was enacted into law, um, he plans to expand this legislation. And that would be primarily through increased subsidies to improve affordability um, by lowering the share of income that is subsidized, uh, that subsidized households pay for coverage and removing the cap that limits the subsidies of people making um, greater than 400, um, less than 400% of the federal poverty level or below. So essentially, they want to make it more affordable for um, middle income Americans and at the same time, um, protect the, the subsidies that are there um, with the expansion of Medicaid services uh, throughout the country. I think it's something that is definitely um, possible, but one of the, the big critiques of this is, um, you know, running up sort of costs um, with these programs and also, um, you know, I always say that money is going to have to come from somewhere and increased taxes is definitely a, a possibility uh, with this. Okay. And another thing um, that Biden wishes to do is he also states that um, no one would have to pay more than 8.5% of their annual income towards payment of premiums. Um, and this was actually backed by the Kaiser Family Foundation um, in their analysis that this is something that could be feasible, mathematically feasible. Let's say that. <laughs> Now, as we shift over to Medicare, we will start with the incumbent, President Trump. And uh, I think this is probably the wisest thing that he's done in uh, four years is that he definitely (laughs) promised to protect Medicare and not make any major changes to the program, as that would be political suicide. And Trump's, uh, you know, I, I definitely think that he would probably follow through on that. Although when we look back at his record over the last four years, um, you know, there are some, some things that have been done that could be detrimental to Medicare. And Trump's proposed elimination of the payroll tax through a recent executive order um, he issued in response to Congress's failure to pass another pandemic relief package could actually put the Medicare program in jeopardy as the program is partially funded through the payroll fact payroll tax. And also, if we look at other legislative actions, chiefly um, promoted by Trump, that has, um, you know, some of these have accelerated the financial crisis that imperils Medicare. Um, And these are the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018, and the Further Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2020, Um, as this repealed the ACA's Cadillac tax. Um, These all negatively impacted the payroll tax and thus decreased federal revenues that would have contributed to Medicare um, and specifically to Medicare trust fund. And finally, when we look at the proposed budget for the 2021 fiscal year, um, it proposed cutting $450 billion in Medicare spending over the course of a decade. now, you know, what that says for the future, right? Would he have potentially other plans, especially with the, the plan that he says that he has, um, you know, set and ready to go? We don't know. Could there be some other revenue streams that would be pumped into Medicare? We really don't know. But again, looking at his record up to this point, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult to say that he's truly benefited the program up to this point. 
Um, and moving on to Trump's on Medicaid. Uh, so he has, over his presidency, consistently backed cuts to the Medicaid program. Um, and also been a proponent of stricter rules on who can receive such safety net insurance through the states. Um, obviously, this is likely to continue should he be elected to a second term. Um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services also invited state waivers that would allow states to not adhere to state standards with regard to program design and oversight in exchange for capped block grants. Uh, so far, this has not been enacted in any state. In addition, the Trump administration has also endorsed plans to have work requirements for Medicaid benefits in various states. Um, this is something that they've tried to do in the past, either a work requirement or a volunteer requirement uh, for people who are receiving Medicaid. Wow, man. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, if you felt this conversation got too dry, <laughs> talking about, uh, you know, all of this business um, regarding uh, the healthcare system in this upcoming election, you know, that's why we have Amani in the background to always um, bring some spice to any conversation. <laughs> um, now she's reading her shark book. So let's let's hope we don't uh, get distracted uh, any further. But yeah, she's she's in the room, a regularly featured um, uh, person uh, on the program. But yeah, man, that's that's a fact. Um, you know, he's been pretty hostile to Medicaid programs and. Uh, you know, we'll see where this sort of goes, um, but we will move over to candidate Biden. And um, as we said, his general plan, right? And mainly this is really just following up on his plans for the Affordable Care Act, but his plan is to expand Medicaid services. And that would be um, through increased funding for Medicaid to pay for in-home and community-based services. Um, the nearly 5 million Americans that would reside in states where Medicaid was not expanded would automatically be covered, um, enrolled under um, a new public option, which we'll uh, get into as another sort of Biden plan for uh, health care. And, you know, you know, this is essentially, you know, one candidate, Biden, who plans to expand these services um, versus uh, Donald Trump, who in consistency with his party, uh, plans to reduce those services. So in terms of reducing costs, lowering healthcare costs uh, in this country, um, starting with President Trump. Now, he's actually done some things to address this, or at least um, he has been pretty active on this front, I would say. And that is something that he definitely um promised during his initial campaign in 2015 and 2016. And so that's one thing I will say that he's followed through on for sure. Uh, so when we look at uh, what Trump has done to lower costs, um, he started with prescription drugs and, you know, basically signed four executive orders trying to reduce the cost of pres prescription drugs. Um, and it started with talking about drug reimportation, um, especially from Canada. And the idea was to reimport re drugs from countries that have price caps on them. So it'd be cheaper to reimport them uh, from those countries rather than just buying them here um, in the United States. However, there are concerns in the countries we would be importing the medications from uh, regarding shortages in those countries and also potentially the prices going up 
um, from these uh, shipping fees and costs that come with importation of any commodity into the United States. Um, and then finally, as far as the quality of the drugs, that too would be um, a major concern. He also did cap insulin costs for some Medicare enrollees, and that would actually take full effect in 2021. And he also signed into law a bill that banned gag clauses, which had previously prevented pharmacists from telling customers about cheaper medication options. Unfortunately, despite um, these efforts, you know, pharmaceutical companies announced price increases for more than 450 drugs at the start of this year. Um, so he's done a number of things, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, we haven't really seen tangible um, benefits from them um, at this point. I, I think it's important to note, too, that uh, when you really want to have an impact on legislation, the best way is to go about the best way to go about it is through putting legislation through Congress uh, versus executive orders, which in a lot of cases can be largely symbolic. True story. And they can easily be challenged, um, you know, by the courts and by individuals that um, whoever they affect adversely, those individuals can challenge those. And so they are, you know, it's not a law, as you said, I agree, it's not a law of the land. And I think that's why we've seen some limitations um, in these actions. Um, But he's done some other things. And um, essentially, uh, through pretty much um, another executive order, he's also worked to improve price transparency. And, you know, essentially the way it works now is when you walk into a hospital, you cannot be told the exact cost of any procedure or service that would be rendered um, at that institution or facility. And, um, you know, there's actually a pretty good example of this um, in an article uh, that appeared in health healthcare finance news that talked about the pricing disparities, um, and essentially, you know, you can have um, as much as on average is uh, I think it was two hundred thirty six percent difference between the lowest cost um, at any given institution versus the highest cost that you might pay at another um, institution or facility, um, and even right, we've seen these discrepancies locally. So this is not just like a East Coast, West Coast thing, or, you know, depending on where you are in the US, but we're talking about within uh, cities and even townships where the price differences, depending on where you go for care, they could be very different. And uh, consumers of healthcare are not aware of this because those um, fees for services are not apparent, they're not advertised, um, or put forth for individuals to review. Um, as far as the impact that this could have, you know, we have not seen, um, similar to what we saw with the sort of, uh, actions that have been taking to reduce the cost of prescription medications. We really have not seen a true benefit for consumers, um, or consumers of healthcare services, uh, in this regard. And it's actually currently, um, being challenged in multiple ways, in multiple ways in the courts. And so that's one of the reasons why we really just have not seen this benefit. Now, I mean, it's definitely a great, I would say, gesture, but um, potentially going through the legislative process might yield um, more of a benefit in this regard. And so he's definitely, I mean, we could see right through his track records up to this point for four years, he's definitely been taking some 
um, very uh, forward actions to address this issue of cost in our systems. Um, but he's been uh, limited in terms of his effectiveness in this regard. Um, and it would be it would be interesting uh, to see what would happen should he win the election, how he would go forward in um, working on on uh, addressing the, these issues in our system. Mm-hmm. I mean, it also begs the question uh, if he campaigned in back in 2016 on lowering the cost of prescription drugs and those costs haven't gone down and he continues to campaign on lowering the cost of prescription drugs will he be able to get it done in a second term or will it be more of the same with executive orders getting caught up in courts, uh, pharmaceutical executives not being happy and pushing to get their own way as well? True story, which he's definitely received a lot of uh, pushback on um, yeah, from the, uh, the corporate interests involved. Yes. Now, when we look at uh, Joe Biden on costs, what he plans to do is really... Um, enforce federal government being able to negotiate directly with drug manufacturers, along with uh, some other public and private purchasers of medications, you know, them being able to to negotiate directly with these manufacturers um, on the prices for these medications. Um, Also, he advocates prices being capped at the amount other developed nations pay for the same or similar drugs or medications. And he also wants to cap out-of-pocket Costs for prescription Medicare's that are prescription medications that are covered under Medicare Part D, um, and also might allow consumers to import medications as well. Um, and as for rebates for prescription medications, he, those would remain. He doesn't have plans uh, to cancel that, and he would remove tax breaks for drug advertising ex- expenses. And also, he actually plans to create a review board to help establish fair market-based prices for new medications and really wants to prohibit prices for all brand name medications and some generic drugs from rising above um, the rate of inflation under Medicare and possibly even for his um, public option. Uh, You know, another thing uh, that that he plans to do is really just to enact antitrust laws that would prevent anti-competitive healthcare consolidations, um, along with other practices that are increasing uh, spending here in the United States. And, and that's something that I've definitely seen in New York, sort of these big healthcare organizations um, sort of going around gobbling up smaller um, operations and you know, there's just less competition um, all around when it comes to um, these healthcare services. And that, you know, partially contributes to exactly what we were talking about before, um, as far as that discrepancy and and prices that we see across the system. Yeah, I think it's interesting to note that that was a very big Trump point back in 2016 of increasing competition among pharmaceuticals and insurance companies providing healthcare, uh, with the idea that increased competition would drive them to lower prices. in order to compete with each other. However, you're saying that even over the past four years, you've seen competition decreasing. So again, what will we see versus what we are told we will see is something that remains to be determined. True story. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, when we talk about the coronavirus um, here in the United States, 
unfortunately, we are at the point where the United States accounts for 4% of the population on this planet, but we have 23% of the world's cases of COVID-19. And worse with that, we have 21% of all deaths on the planet. Um, that too can get controversial, controversial depending on who you talk to. You know, I think those figures are dead, you know, I would say um, fairly accurate. I'm not going to sit here and um, discount them because I've seen the impact of COVID-19 firsthand, um, especially uh, practicing at the outset of the outbreak in New York. Um, but we've, you know, essentially we've seen up to this point an uncoordinated federal response. Um, and that has been posited as the main reason uh, by many experts for the difficulty that we've had in, in dealing with this vi virus and the sort of outcomes that we've seen in terms of deaths and the um, infection rates that are still increasing throughout the country. Now, who you want to pin this on or blame for this, right, that is, um, you know, up for debate, but we do have um, President Trump at the helm right now, um, pretty much from the start of the crisis up to now. And you know, it's hard to say whether this is something that has been adequately managed. Now, what would have happened, right? I think any number of scenarios you can sort of um, imagine had it been Biden that was in office um, or any other, you know, I guess, Democratic candidate or just any other uh, individual. You know, we can't say that, unfortunately. Um, you know, we can sort of... Uh, look to is that Trump says that he plans to squish right, or squash yeah. and eradicate this virus uh, should he be reelected. And he, it seems to be, he mainly intends to do this through um, advancements with therapeutics, um, everything from drugs like remdesivir to, you know, treatments with monoclonal antibodies, which he actually received um, this sort of experimental um, intervention that he received during his uh, bout with the illness. And Which I of course- I will point out uh, the, the monoclonal antibodies, uh, the research that resulted in that treatment was made using fetal derived tissue, which is a process that he has condemned. However, the result of that process, he's touting as a miracle cure for COVID-19. So it is interesting to point that out. Not that it has any effect on the, stat the state of healthcare in the next election, but that is something that I thought was very interesting. That is interesting. I, I didn't know that. <laughs> that. But I mean, you know, this is, um, it's, it's difficult to say where this would go. And, and have we made inroads in the development of a vaccine through Operation Warp Speed, um, which is this sort of huge endeavor, right? Um, it basically taking a lot of cash and, and throwing it at uh, pharmaceutical companies with the hopes that they can really uh, drive forward with the development of a vaccine. And, um, you know, looking at the data thus far, it has been pretty promising from a number of um, uh, firms, um, including, uh, as we know, Moderna, which is, seems to be sort of in the lead in this race to develop a vaccine. Um, but one thing that, that consistently comes up is, you know, really from the president's sort of flippant attitude toward this virus um, and his track work record thus thus far, and especially with the election, you know, sort of on our heels right now, um, people are wondering how much, you know, these developments are 
sort of impacted by the politics. That's one thing that's come up consistently, whether the science that we're seeing, you know, coming out of these uh, studies and especially these trials with the vaccine, you know, whether that is something that is um, genuine and, you know, we're actually going to hopefully achieve a safe and reliable and um, efficacious vaccine versus something that is, you know, um, being propelled by the politics and what's at, at stake with this election. Um, you know, looking at the sort of promises and the commitments as we just saw these, you know, CEOs of these companies come forward and say that they are sticking to the science and not letting any uh, anything else really influence um, their work. I'm praying and, and, you know, even looking at the data myself, leaning on the side that this is something that I think is happening um, with people really making sure that this is going to be a safe and, and effective intervention and that this is not um, heavily influenced by the political atmosphere at this point. But this is something that we know, right, unfortunately has been brought on by um the Trump White House, Trump and the Trump White House. And so that's something that we got to take into account. I saw a very interesting article earlier today, actually, um, essentially saying what to expect in the spring in regards to a coronavirus vaccine. And it sounded very similar to what we saw very early on in the pandemic with testing, where you mm -hmm. had multiple tests from multiple different companies, all with varying efficacy. So they're saying essentially in the spring, there is a potential that there's going to be multiple vaccines released by different companies. Some will be more effective than others. And there may be a lot of confusion associated with which vaccine to get um, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it's difficult to say, man, because uh, I will tell you, that, and this is, I know we said we would stay partial, right? I mean, I do not have to kind of know, you know, I think it's maybe beneficial to see how we are thinking about this as well. Um, but I, I too have to say that if there were a vaccine that was approved tonight, right. Um, or the day before the election, um, or even sometime in the vicinity of this current election cycle, I would really be very, 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 um, apprehensive, uh, about taking that, especially as a frontline provider, which I would definitely probably would be among those that would be of the highest priority in receiving that vaccine. And I can even see pressure coming down from um, the institutions that I work for, right, and in, in getting that um, intervention. Um, but I really have to say that I would be very, very uh, reluctant if that were to happen. And that's um, chiefly because of what we've been seeing with the politics around this issue. Um, and so that's just something that we just, I think we really ought to, in making this decision about where we're putting our votes, um, something that we have to think about because um, this is something that um, would I would imagine continue. I don't see President Trump really changing um, that behavior, unfortunately, uh, going forward. Um, and so if we look to Biden, and as we said, we can't know how he would have managed this uh, crisis, but... Uh, Biden would likely, from what we understand, and if we look back to his um, uh, vice presidency um, and even going back to 2009 with the emergence of the uh, swine flu, um, it is likely that he would enact COVID-19 legislation 
um, that would dramatically change the role of the federal government in um, how they respond to this pandemic. And he says that, um, you know, basically he would scale up testing. He would give state and local governments the resources they need to open schools and businesses safely. I mean, I would say that that sounds like a hollow kind of statement, but <laughs> I think there are many ways in which he would try to do that. But this is what he's saying as the candidate uh, currently running for office. Um, and he says that he would take a backseat to scientists and allow the FDA to unilaterally make decisions um, when it comes to things like emer emergency authorizations and approval of medications and other interventions. Uh, he also supports reopening the um, Affordable Care Act enrollment period for those that are uninsured, um, you know, basically giving people insurance coverage when we are all at an increased risk of, um, you know, potential worse health outcomes uh, because of the pandemic itself. And he also talks about eliminating out-of-pocket costs for COVID-19 treatment, um, including enacting additional pay and protective equipment for um, essential workers. Um, also, he talks about increasing the federal match rate for Medicaid for um, by at least 10%. Um, so this way, individuals that we know have been significantly more impacted by this disease, right? People at the sort of um, lower socioeconomic status, really just helping them to afford uh, the care that they need in dealing with this. Um, on a somewhat related note, Biden also supports rejoining the World Health Organization, which uh, Trump pulled the U.S. out of. And um, as Reid actually proposed this, as we were like, uh, you know, figuring out how we would talk about this topic. And he was like, yeah, the, the, you know, really the simplest way is just to say the, uh, the other candidate opposes what <laughs> completely opposes everything the other person said. And that's it. That's, I mean, essentially, um, in terms of those measures... Uh, to deal with this crisis that we're dealing with. Um, you know, Trump essentially opposes most of them. Um, now, one thing he did sign uh, COVID-19 relief legislation uh, that upped the Medicaid match rate by 6.2% and also um, extended the COBRA election period. The COBRA legislation, ladies and gentlemen, that is um, really for to protect individuals that have um, lost their job, it is to really make sure that they can remain insured um, for a period of time. Um, he did enact that, however, without subsidies attached to it, but he did, you know, um, sign that legislation to extend that COBRA election period. And hopefully we were able to really just get some information um, out there to help you make these decisions, especially if you're undecided um, at this point. Which, I mean, I, I kind of doubt that there's many undecided voters out there because this has been such a divisive election. True, true story, man. But hopefully, I mean, as you said too, uh, Reed, and thank you, man, for pointing it out, like it just gives you an idea as to what to um, expect going forward, right? Depending on who gets in office. And um, I think that is really important, um, you know, depending on what your situation is, you know, looking into plans, right, depending on what we get, plan your life and your financial situation, um, how you obtain health care looking forward, it's going to be huge depending on who is in office and really knowing what those individuals bring to the table 
can help you sort of strategize um, to make sure that you get what you need in terms of uh, healthcare um, in this country. And there, you know, it's it's difficult to forecast what that might be, what that might entail. Um, but for instance, in you know, in, in terms of my own um, situation, uh, it's just looking into things like healthcare savings accounts, right, and how that can help me offset the costs that might come uh, from my wife being pregnant with my second child. <laughs> like we're going to deliver soon, and so offsetting the costs that come with you know paying um, high deductibles um, in insurance or even sort of medium-sized deductibles, that might be something that can help offset those costs um, and prevent me from coming out of my pocket um, out much, as much. You know, that's a strategy that I have to go forward with knowing our current uh, system and, you know, how sort of all of this works. And so really just knowing who's going to be in there and what they bring into the table can help you in um, sort of planning all of this stuff out. But um yeah, maybe we should plan a follow-up show to this one uh, after the election based on who is I'm elected. down for that, man. I'm down for that. It's definitely a difficult topic. And ladies and gentlemen, you know, as we always say, um, thank you for listening, number one. Two, um, we would thank you in advance for participating in the program. And by participating, we mean sending your comments, questions, or concerns, especially regarding this show. Um, I will admit and you probably sense this was a difficult um, topic for myself and Reed, um, as we had to really go in and do a, you know a lot of background research in order to try to bring you the best information possible, um, and also be objective in bringing you that information. Um, but we really want to hear from you because that will only help us um, in going forward and, and bringing you this type of information, and also just having a dialogue, um, you know, online in our comment section where we can really uh, talk about these issues. And for those, as we said, that did not make that decision, right? Maybe you can learn something new through the program and contribute to the conversation uh, through that. And so, yeah, man, thank you, Reed, for for being here too, man. It's always good talking with you, always good seeing you here. And ladies and gentlemen, we also want to shout out the rest of our team um, out there. I know they are hustling and we've been really just meeting a lot lately, just trying to um, be better each and every week um, that we come out to you and ladies and gentlemen we also um, want to thank Imani, she's not going to close us out tonight, <laughs> she has to go to bed uh, but yeah she, she is something else and always uh, willing to join us on the program ladies and gentlemen this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas Harlem, take care of yourself